welcome to episode 107 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. In this episode, we'll be discussing do we care what characters read? More will be explained soon. In the second half, we are doing two novels by Stella Gibbons, Embry Heath and The Bachelor. Uh, before I hand over to Rachel, I will say, for those who are listening when this comes out, uh, apologies for the issues we're having with Spotify um, and maybe other places that Rachel doesn't know about. Uh, <laughs> there's issues with Feedburn. I don't understand it. I hope I fixed it. It's it's all very confusing. And, you know, literary people shouldn't have to understand computers in any way. And I don't. No. But hopefully it's back up. I mean, if, if it's not, you're probably not hearing this. So <laughs> we're just talking into the ether. Uh, Rachel, how are you doing? What are you reading? Um, I'm all right, thank you. Um, I've just spent the last two weeks in Devon slash Cornwall because I was staying right on the border Um, and it was lovely and I somehow managed to, I booked this holiday many months ago and managed to perfectly time it for the heatwave so I wasn't in London Mm. when it was 40 odd degrees which was very nice. and the sea was just at the end of the lane where the little cottage was. And uh, Kirsty Allsop's house was was around the corner. People not in England won't know who she is, but everyone else um, yes, will know. Did so you I see did, her? No, well, she rents it out as a holiday let, obviously. Um, but I did go and have a sneaky look. Um, but there was someone in the garden, so I couldn't, like, I was going to go <laughs> up and like, actually look in the window, but I couldn't. Um, so yeah, that was it. Was a beautiful village it's called Welcome, um, funnily enough, um, right on the north um, Devon Cornwall border. So it's beautiful, like rugged, um, you know, cliff top scenery, very Daphne du Maurier. Beautiful. Um, yeah, so that was lovely, and I did a lot of reading while I was there. So um, I read. I've just I've just told Simon all the books I've read, so he's going to be like, oh, I just heard this. Um, <laughs> I read, I'll feign surprise though. Yes. Oh, how interesting. Um, <laughs> I read The Good Companions by David. What? I know, shocker. Which I absolutely loved. And I will say this. Um, I I feel that um I'm not sure people outside of the, the UK whether he's he's ever been read at all, but um he's only really known here now as a playwright because an inspector mm. calls is so is on the school curriculum and has been for donkey years. Um but he's so much more than an inspector calls. Um and he was more well known during his lifetime as a novelist. And mm-hmm. um, I've read a couple of his books before. You know, they're real doorstoppers and very character led rather than plot led. But absolutely love them. The Good Companions is all about three people who join, who who give up their lives and join a travelling theatre company. So it was right up my street. Um, and yeah, I love that. And then I read. Um, what should I read next? I read Jamaica Inn, which um, mm-hmm. I've been meaning to read for ages, and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't Rebecca um, or my cousin yeah. Rachel, which I do think are her best, um, but recommended nonetheless. It's a good, a good sort of you know trashy summer read. Um, what else have I read? Um, oh, I read Vera by um, Elizabeth von Arnim, which I've been meaning to read. It's my one unread Elizabeth von Arnim, so I was like, I'm taking this on holiday with me, and I'm actually going to read it because I've owned it for about ten years. Um, oh, yeah, that's one I've not read, but it's quite miserable, isn't it? It is, but it's it's like I just wanted to kill the man in it. Mm-hmm. Like every page, I was like, I want to reach my arms in and strangle you and watch you suffer <laughs> because you're so horrific. Um, yes, it's very. I mean, we would we would call his behaviour nowadays um, like coercive um, behaviour, um, 
yeah. and it's you know disgusting so that was it was a good read but you know like I, I feel I thought I can't read this again because it's you know my blood pressure is through the ceiling um and the last one I read was uh, the last Elizabeth Taylor I hadn't read out of my vast collection um which is what was it what did I say it was called I told you this already you did what did you say you said uh, a wreath of roses a wreath of roses yes thank you which I enjoyed but I didn't enjoy it as much as as her others I think if you've not read any Elizabeth Taylor I wouldn't start with it because it's not necessarily a good indicator of her quality Whereas I was saying that it was one of my favourites. I just loved yes. all the go- the gothic aspects to it. Yeah, I don't know. I was just a bit like... Mm. I, re- I read it straight after The Good Companions, which I'd enjoyed so much. I think it was a bit of like... A, oh, maybe if I'd not read it straight after reading something I've been so immersed in, I would have enjoyed it more. But I was just a bit like... I don't really care about any of you. You're all annoying. <laughs> yeah, I read it for a literary conference I went to where someone was speaking about it. And I read it in... Well, not all of it. I read bits of it while sitting in the grounds of a ruined castle, which maybe it was the oh. right atmosphere for reading it. Probably, yeah. Better. But, yeah, so that's me and that's what I've been reading an awful lot. I mean, I haven't really read very much this year and it was just like, I was just like thirsty for more literature. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, the... thanks very much. Yeah, so what about you? What have you been up to? So I also managed to escape the heat wave which well uh, was pretty bad in Oxford as well I was in Keswick in the Lake District oh gorgeous um, beautiful place I was there with work so uh, and so I was working at the Keswick convention which is uh, for those who don't know is a, a Christian festival I guess or conference or convention in fact um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so it wasn't complete holiday but there was plenty of time off uh, to in between shifts and things so I did get some reading and Rachel I was very proud of myself for the reading I selected during the heat wave yeah. because I read Heat Wave by Penelope Lively. Oh and... do you know what I've just read that as well. <laughs> Have you? Oh we can move yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I also read Instructions for a Heat Wave by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh wow look at you. Think, yeah I themed my reading to the heat wave although actually it was raining by the time I finished <laughs> Instructions <laughs> for a Heat Wave. Um, so yeah I, I mean but I bought, um, well, actually, I've had them for a while, but I know the last heat wave we had a few years ago, the bookshop in Ox- Oxford, the Waterstones in Oxford, was putting both of those prominently in quite a ca- canny way, but I don't, haven't mm. seen that so much this year. But yes, as you all know now, uh, Heat Wave by Penelope Lively is uh, basically the awkward relationships between a woman and her daughter and son-in-law uh, who live yes. in, or who are staying in adjoining cottage or semi-detached cottages for a summer. Uh, and the tensions, I guess, between them um, through that summer. I don't think it had a specific date, that particular one, but uh, the feeling I think it was it was meant to be sort of contemporary to yeah. the... Yeah. To when was it? Late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whereas Instructions for a Heat Wave is set during the infamous heat wave of 1976. Uh, and that's, oh. again, sort of family dynamics, this uh, slightly domineering... Uh, mother and grandmother and and her her husband goes missing and then her three adult children have to get involved trying to find out where he is and all the lots of uh um te- again tensions and secrets and things all emerge and i, and I felt instructions for a heatwave was really pacey and plotty and i really enjoyed it. it was really good characters as well they both had really good characters that one was more pacey whereas uh penelope lively's heatwave was more sort of contemplative and it was mostly moved forward by character rather than by event yes so i have to say i mean obviously i won't say but did you not find that ending shocking 
I didn't see it coming. Yeah, I did find that quite shocking. It was actually <laughs> the, the um, I read two books a week, and I won't say what the event was, but two two books in that week where that quite bizarre event happened, and equally sort of unexpectedly. That's yeah, vague, yeah, but you don't then, want to spoil the ending. No, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I mean, it's worth reading for the ending alone. I have to say, I was I got to the point where I was like, mm, is anything going to happen? And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I will say, although it was a heat wave was I was reading them and both of them talked about heat wave in them I didn't I guess it's one thing you can't have threaded too much through a novel because you can't have characters just constantly saying gosh isn't it hot so yeah, <laughs> yeah it, I kind of forgot I mean it was there more in the Penelope Lively's because she'd in, intersperse it with what was going on in, in the arable land behind the house and that, mm. how that was affected by the seasons there was a great description of the wheat hissing in the heat mm. um whereas yeah the Maggie O'Farrell uh they they mention it every now and then, but it's not really. You just have, just have to remember it that it's there, really. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought they were both very good in quite different ways. And now I've run yeah. out of books with heat wave in the title, but I do still have Heat Lightning by Helen Hull. So next yeah. next heat wave, which is a wonderful out. book. Well, you know, we, you've just come to London because it's going to be you know seven <laughs> degrees every day for the rest of the summer, apparently. So oh, heavens, yeah. yeah. Well, um, maybe we will talk about heat various heat books in the future then since we uh, have those coming <laughs> but that's not what we're doing next time we'll tell you later what we're doing next time yes uh, what we're doing this time is the latest in our do we care series that i've foisted <laughs> on, on the podcast <laughs> uh do we care what characters read by which i mean um uh, do we like it when real books pop up in novels and do, do we think they add things to the story or do we think it's a gimmick etc etc uh, it's a classic situation where Rachel tells me she can't think of anything and by the end of the episode she'll have come out of loads, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I talked a bit about this, in fact, on when I was a guest on the Mooks and the Gripes podcast, which is why I, when I was making notes it all felt, felt a bit familiar. <laughs> but plenty of you don't listen to that, I'm sure. Um, well, they should. It's a great podcast. And we'll come up with new ones. And the, the, I mean, the first one that uh, was on my little list I wrote down uh, where it's very central is The Hours by Margaret Cunningham. That we have, yeah, we've talked about quite a few times on the podcast. But for those who don't remember or don't know, uh, it's uh, there's three different uh, women and three different periods interspersed in it. One is Virginia Woolf writing Mrs. Dalloway. One is a lady called Laura Brown in, I want to say, 1950s, 1960s mm-hmm. America, yeah, around 50s, then, 50s, 50s. Uh, reading Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, and the third is Clarissa in 1990s New York, who is... Uh, has a life very like Mrs. Dalloway's, although she hasn't read Mrs. Dalloway herself, or at least hasn't read it since high school, so she she's not aware of the similarities. Um, and yeah, in fact, we talked a bit about it in the last episode. Now, I, now I'm talking about it because we talked about mm. the film adaptations. So oh, yeah. yes, <laughs> it's becoming the new Emma. But uh, <laughs> that's an example, I think, where it's obviously not just a passing reference; it really informs the whole thing, and it's fused, and I think, in a, in a very sophisticated and successful way. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful example of intertextuality, Simon. It is a wonderful mm. example of intertextuality. Positively Saussurian. Yes. Shall I keep going? Uh, yes, no, please do. No, I'm just going to let you do this, and then I'm going to come in <laughs> and sweep in at the sweep end. Sweep in. Well, 
another book I talk about a lot, the Provincial Lady series. I once went through, in fact, and made a note of every book that is mentioned in it. (laughs) Why wouldn't I? Mm. So there's one that Persephone fans will be familiar with, where she recommends The Priory by Dorothy Whipple. That's where a Mm -hmm. lot of people first came across Dorothy Whipple, I think. Um, Recommends it to someone in, I think that's in The Provincial Lady in Wartime. Uh, There's also things like... uh, her child whose name I've forgotten even though I read it all the time what's his son called Robin 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 loves Oliver Twist he's reading that um there's someone who talks about how much they love Shakespeare which everyone hates um her doing the French lady herself loves the Brontes and Jane particularly Jane Eyre that really marks her out as someone that the readership will have affinity with because Mm -hmm. it's one of those shorthand books where if you mention mention that a character is reading it you automatically a certain uh, type of reader feels sympathy and empathy for them, uh, which is again informs the whole of the Brontes who went to Woolworths by Rachel Ferguson, uh, where they appear as characters, but also they are uh, their work and their lives are th- sort of threaded through the novel. Yes, um, and my mouth's going dry. So you you say something. <laughs> uh, um, well, I'm just trying to think of um, things where it's sort of central because I mean I can think of lots of examples where. A character's reading something and that's I do like you said it's is a little um shorthand for the author to sort of suggest oh you know this person is like affiliated with this particular um you know writer or author and that that therefore it tells you something about their personality yeah give us an example um I know I'm I'm trying here (laughs) um I was going to say actually um I've remembered that in the provincial lady she mentions dorothy whipple and i find that quite interesting actually because i read a lot of novels from the 40s and 30s as as of you obviously mm. um and you know dorothy whipple was a real best bestseller and yet i can't recall ever reading anybody else saying um you know i'm reading this or i'm or like giving giving her mm. to mm. a character and i wonder whether that's because it was not considered highbrow. So if you're wanting to kind of give the impression that your character is intellectual or literary or whatever, then you're going to be perhaps choosing a slightly different um, uh, sort of character. So in Mrs. Miniver, for example, um, I always love that opening uh, by Jan Struther, um, where she sort of gets, I think this is sort of September, the children have just gone back to school and she comes home and she's um, the tea's been made and the, the library books are there. Um, and I can't remember what the library mm, books are. Mm. This isn't helpful. No, I can't. <laughs> um, but it's you get a real glimpse there of of what everybody's reading. But it's it's um, kind of books that we've forgotten about now. I don't remember thinking. In fact, you know, I'll get it and I'll have a look because it'll be on the first page. Um, yeah, do that. My very nice American. My very nice first edition that I got in the charity shop for three pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Let's see what she's got. Doesn't say. <laughs> what an anticlimax! <laughs> it just reminded me of another um, thing in the French Lady, where she talks about Harriet Hume by Rebecca West. And oh yeah. She, or, or and she says, I think it's going to be a case. I'm going to misparaphrase. She says something like, I think it's going to be a case like Orlando, where I'm able to talk very intelligently about it until I read it, and then I don't yeah. know what to say about it. And um, for those who don't know Harriet Hume, it's about it's quite an intellectual political novel about this woman who can um, is psychic, basically. She can she can read people's thoughts, uh, but it's much more about politics. And it's 
I think quite tedious, but but uh, but an interesting concept. And Orlando Beverly Wolf, as I'm sure most people know, about a character who lives for 400 years and changes from a man into a woman. So um, both sort of high concept, odd books for the highbrows in the period. Which you know, by her mentioning that she has has thought about reading them or has read one of them and doesn't know what to say about them and feels a bit intimidated by them, is creating some sort of connection with the reader, the sort of anticipated reader of the provincial lady books who might also be intimidated by Virginia Woolf and mm. Rebecca West. So yeah, I think books are often there to to form that connection and say, you know, pinpoint which characters are the ones that we can em- empathize with. Yes. And it's interesting actually because the book I've just read Vera by Elizabeth von Arnim, um, Vera is the dead wife of the of the man who marries the character in the book. So Vera is a bit like Rebecca, as in, mm-hmm. you know, you never meet her. Um, but she has her own room in the house. They move into the house that, that she died in. I mean, it's all very macabre. You should read it. It's good if you haven't read it, people listening. Um, and uh, up there, downstairs in the library, the, the husband has has he's bought from he wrote to Mudie's the library and asked them to send him a set of leather backed of all uh, novels of you know the the best classics that he then keeps locked in a bookcase and never actually reads but they're there for you know for show and then um upstairs in her in Vera's room there is like Wuthering Heights there's um you know and lots of Baedekers because she dreamed of going traveling um, that was never allowed to go. So you get this real. We never meet Vera, but the but Elizabeth von Arnim uses her personal library as a way for us to understand the kind of person that she was, and what her dreams were, and what her passions were. And then you have that kind of contrast with this very sterile library downstairs that's been chosen to um, kind of give off a sort of learned impression. Um, and he's always talking about how how kind of stupid Vera was, etc. But you can tell that she wasn't from what she was reading. But that also all of the books she was reading were women's, uh, written by women. And the fact that they're dismissed as being worthless by him tells you everything about mm, his personality. Mm, mm. So that's actually a very clever use of of literature to um, reveal a lot. Um, but again, only to to readers in the know, I suppose. It's another shorthand, literary shorthand. Yes, yeah, I think, and some of these. Uh, shorthands still make sense to us now like we all still know what Wuthering Heights is but, mm. um, kind of can read a, read a quote from Keep the Aspidist Flying by George Orwell if I may which yes, is uh, a section about Gordon the, the inverted commas hero uh, who works in a bookshop and it's quite dismissive of the books he sees so the quote is 800 strong the novels line the room on three sides ceiling high row upon row of gaudy oblong backs as though the walls had been built of many coloured bricks laid upright, they arranged alphabetically Arlen, Burroughs, Deeping, Dell, Franco, Goldsworthy, Gibbs, Priestley, Sapper, Walpole. Gordon Eisen, with inert hatred, at this moment he hated all books and novels most of all. Horrible to think of all that soggy, half-baked trash massed together in one place. <laughs> so, there you go. But, but that list of names, so I'm going to see if I can get all the first names. So you've got Michael Arlen, uh, William Burroughs, Warwick yes. Deeping, Ethel M. Dell, I guess probably uh, Gilbert Franco, could be Pamela Franco, um, John Goldsworthy, Philip Gibbs, mm-hmm. I think, J.B. Priestley, Sapper was the whole name, uh, and then Hugh Walpole. So some of those names we still know, like Priestley, as you say, is still remembered a little bit, uh, Goldsworthy, Ireland maybe, but probably, and Walpole, I mean, people like Gilbert Franco or 
um, Warwick Deeping, you have to have an interest in this period to know a that they exist and b what sort of reader was anticipated would have been expected to read those. Like, particularly Warwick Deeping was was and Ethel Emdell also on that list were held up as examples of popular bad literature by the highbrow critics, like the Liebeses and you know other people like that in the time. Yes, so, and it's it's interesting that the author sort of has a a kind of a reader in mind and not just a reader of their book but a reader in general when they're writing their book mm-hmm. um which i find quite interesting it's like i think probably the most famous example i can think of is north Abbey by Jane yes. austen where you've got catherine who um the main character who's steeped in these terrible gothic romances that were very popular when Jane Austen was writing um people like Anne Radcliffe who wrote The Mysteries of Adolfo she was sort of the main um after uh, Horace Walpole who started the genre he, she was the main female novelist of the period of the late 18th century he was writing um gothic novels and so you've got Catherine Morland who is you know so loves this and reading what is essentially trash i love that they're they're kind of published nowadays as sort of you know penguin classics with these academic yeah, so introductions yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and at the time they were just something that you know you you read and whispered about and it's it's also what's interesting is that Catherine is is shown to be um you know unduly influenced by novels and then gradually starts to realize that life is not a gothic novel it's a wonderful if you people haven't read it i often find actually that people of all the austin novels it's the one people haven't read um i think it's got a bit of a bad rep but actually it's one of my favorites of hers and i think it's it's genuinely and i think it's her funniest book um yeah and you know and you don't have to know anything about gothic literature to to read it and enjoy it It's, it's a parody but um, and it's a parody of gothic fiction in and of itself. So the irony is, it's kind of like she's making fun of these terrible books, etc. But also, in order to appreciate the books she's writing, you've still got to have read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I also I noted that down. But I also noted that Mansfield Park with the play uh, "Lovers' Vows" by mm. somebody I forgot. I can't who. remember. Yeah. Whereas I guess that's an example where similarly you you don't have to have read. Lover's Vows to understand why it's why Fanny thinks it's scandalous that they're putting on a play, um, and you know she's very, very immoral. And you just need to know what sort of play it is. Or yes, yeah. And similarly, as you're saying with the Gothic, you don't need to have read those precise Gothic novels. You just need to know what the Gothic implied. Which, uh, yeah, because I, mean, I think it is dangerous if an author mentions someone someone that where you actually need to understand all of the semiotics of of the text rather than mm. just. A little bit. I mean, a very good author or, or capable author will will make sure you know what what is going on. Whereas, I mean, this this list from Orwell, you can you can see because they're in a list and it's someone who's dismissing them. You can work out vaguely what's going on, even if it's just a list of names that you don't know anything about. But at the time, yes. I guess it would have been been a lot richer or a lot, you know, a lot more wry smiles. Maybe or oh yes, I remember my mother in law. You read that or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? How quickly these references date. And how yeah, um, yeah. perhaps somebody who has been incredibly popular or who the author has assumed will always remain in common parlance is slips out of complete recognition. And so you're left sort of trying to puzzle who, who was these, these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's why you, if, if you're trying to have a sympathetic one, it's often more in historical fiction. Like mm. I've just read um, A Sky Painted Gold by Laura Wood. Uh, have you read any Laura Wood? I haven't actually never heard of it. She's really fun. They're young adult. They're quite recent. I read... Um, 
A Snowfall of Silver first, which is actually a sequel, but it doesn't really matter which order you read them in. And they're set in the 20s, I think, maybe 30s, the second one. Um, they're very obvious that, you know, which heroine and which hero are going to get together, but they're, they're just, they're really charming and lovely. And if you're, if you're into the 20s and 30s, it, it's a sort of slightly glamorized version of those, but in a, in a fun, in a fun way. And the uh, heroine of A Sky Painted Gold is obsessed with Agatha Christie. Um, she, breaks into the house next door to go and read the Agatha Christie books. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Agatha Christie was probably a safe bet to mention even a con- in a contemporary novel, but there is something about setting it in the past where obviously the author knows which books have survived since then because they're living them. So they, yeah. they know that Agatha Christie is still a name now. And similarly, you know, if, you, if you're making someone read the Brontes or Jane Austen, then you, you then you know that that, that her shorthand still exists. Whereas, yeah. yeah, if you're going with a contemporary author, it's a bit of a gamble that it like I mean Ian Delafield was making a bit of a gamble by mentioning Dorothy Whipple. Um, yeah. which, you know, before she was reprinted by Persephone probably didn't make any sense to a lot of people. But how delightful now that, you know, when you read that, you know you've met a kindred spirit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? Kindred spirits. Yeah. 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 Um, and the yeah, one of the others I noted down quite differently is the bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald and what oh, Lolita yeah. is doing in that book where she wants to sell Lolita and that causes sort of crisis in the village. Uh, That's just a good lo- example. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that book today when I was in the bookshop and I was thinking, I always get confused between Penelope Lively and Penelope Fitzgerald and I can never remember who wrote what. Um, even though they're very, quite different writers. Yeah, throw, I used to throw Penelope Mortar into that mix as well. But again, all quite different, <laughs> all very good. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, <laughs> funny. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like um, thinking about books about books and, you know, deliberate use of literature as, as a central part of the text. And then also thinking about books where it's sort of just, just chucked in as an aside. Um, but it does give you a little bit of a clue about the character. Um, there are so many, you know, very deeply literary books, like books that are really, you know, like we've just we were just looking before, weren't we, at books to do for next time? And I was like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. um, what one did I say? The Elizabeth Taylor book that's, um, I'm just looking right now, Palladian, which is basically a version of, um, of Wuthering Heights. Now, if you don't know Wuthering Heights, then obviously you can still read the book, but you're not going to get the same pleasure from it so I mean I know that's not necessarily what we're talking about but it's it's interesting to think about how writers use literature in different ways so you either use it to structure your novel you can use it um, and you you rely on the reader having that implied knowledge it's also that assumption that everybody's read a certain um kind of canon of novels which I think Mm -hmm. perhaps in an earlier period of time you, you could uh, you could naturally assume, but nowadays I don't think you can assume that everybody's got that base anymore. So it's it's quite difficult to make choices, I would imagine, as a writer to think what book should or could I reference here that's going to tell a sufficient number of people something about this character. Um, and having and to make to ju- Sorry. No, go ahead. I was literally yeah. just finished. Oh, good, excellent. Um, yeah, in fact, to jump back to Michael Cunningham, I last year I read Specimen Days by him, which is a bit like The Hours in that it's set in three time periods. In this one, it's Victorian, contemporary, and the future. Uh, and in all three of them, Walt Whitman is very important. So he appears mm-hmm. as a character in one of them. Uh, robots will give his lines in the future. I can't remember how, how exactly it's in the current day. Um, I really didn't like that book at all, partly because, you know, 
far too historical for me and then far too sci-fi the middle bit set in contemporary day i enjoyed that bit. but uh but i also don't know anything about what whitman i've never read any what whitman i don't know what his his work suggests to someone I, i'm just completely ignorant about him and i imagine most americans probably have encountered him at high school or university or something um and there's a much bigger understanding of what what whitman implies as a presence in a novel whereas yeah i felt in that one like an outsider and it didn't yeah it was one of the reasons it didn't work for me yeah i mean it's a risk to take and especially when you're dealing also with a writer who is very nationally significant but perhaps not internationally mm-hmm. significant you're sort of closing off an entire audience of people because i mean i did a bit of all whitman at university but i mean that was donkey's years ago um and you know again that would mean nothing to me and part of the pleasure is when you can enjoy the references um yeah. so yeah it's nice which reminds me of a, an uncommon reader or the uncommon reader by alan bennett where mm. uh, the queen gets addicted to reading via a library van and there's lots and lots i mean it starts with ivy compton bennett but then lots and lots of uh, references that are fun to follow along. yes i remember enjoying that very much um yeah. Contrary, uh, I really enjoyed Virginia Woolf in Manhattan by Maggie Gee, which is about Virginia Woolf reappearing in contemporary Manhattan to a literary researcher. But one of the things that did peeve me of it is that she, Virginia Woolf didn't do any reading or writing when she came back. And that, I was thinking, yeah. this, you know, she lived to read and write. Those were her passions. Why, yeah. why is she, if, if she had the chance to do more of that, why isn't she? Interesting. Why well, use a real person or a literary reference if you're not going to do something with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, but a good book, nonetheless. Yes, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, so, do we care what characters read? Do you care what characters read, Rachel? Yeah, I think I do, because I think it's it gives you an opportunity to, to understand something about them without it needing to be said if you see what I mean you can make assumptions but then only if you know the reference so I'm also aware that it could be quite exclusive to do that so I don't know I mean I think yes for me but I'm also bearing in mind that not everybody will get the reference yes I'm going to say yes for me as well Uh, it was hard to think of ones that I thought had done it badly and I don't or, or unsuccessfully for me I guess so maybe people do in general go with such um so you know uh, such obvious or such clear signposted people that they're not taking that risk or maybe i've just missed real people who are mentioned in books and i think they're made up no. i don't know there we are <laughs> yes and yes yeah. right we don't have a question for the middle so people we need more questions email us at t or books at gmail.com send in your thoughts your questions your uh requests anyway. yeah <laughs> yeah please do <laughs> we'll just have to move I like, on to... I like having oh, questions to answer actually yes well it's fun isn't it it's particularly I like it when it's recommendations or sorry yeah. or requests for recommendations of people like what should I read first from this author or something that's always fun yeah so do get in touch uh, but onwards to Embry Heath and The Bachelor by Stella Gibbons which would you like to introduce us to Rachel oh I genuinely don't mind so you choose okay um, I'll do Embry Heath then. Okay. Uh, so Embry Heath is published in 1935. Uh, it's about siblings called Sophia, possibly Sophia, let's say Sophia, Harry and Francis Garden. Uh, when their dad dies, uh, and they're not close to him, he's a pretty awful person, um, he 
that they might, you know, he's shortly before that, their much loved mother had died, uh, and they inherit some money and they decide um, to get rent out a little, a tiny cottage on Embry Heath, which is a stand in for Hampstead Heath. Um, tiny cottage, as we might discuss later, it seems to be uh, pretty relative. <laughs> it seems, seems pretty big to me. But, um, uh, and yeah, so th- that actually, they actually don't move into the house for, for quite a long time in the novel. It doesn't appear after moving until the second, third. Uh, but yeah, they set up a house there. They originally, initially, it's it's all going quite well. These siblings living together. As the novel progresses, other characters come in uh, to sort of disrupt the harmony of the three there. And um, yeah, there's a bit, a bit of a love ta- entanglements thrown into the mix. Uh, and it's about whether or not this this new sibling idyllic uh, lifestyle is is going to be a success, and apparently semi autobiographical. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the Bachelor is set during World War Two, and it is in a very vaguely disguised, what I think to be St Albans on the outskirts, um, and it's. There's a large country house at the centre of it where um, Constance and lives with her cousin and her brother and they are, you know, of a certain age. And the bachelor of the title is, the, is her brother, who um, is Betty. Is her name Betty? I get confused. No, Constance is her name. Um, Constance, yeah, Betty is the cousin. Yeah. Yes, Betty's the cousin. And Constance has always uh, resisted her any attempt for her brother to be married off. Uh, she thinks that he is he's not marriage material so the fact that the novel's called The Bachelor uh, you can assume that there will obviously be some shenanigans going on mm-hmm. um, and things get started when um, Constance is a, is a big believer in international peace she's against the war and she decides that rather than helping people in her own country during the war she wants to help um, foreigners and her, her way of doing that is to to get a, a woman a, a young girl from a, a made up country it is a genuinely made up country um, a like Bessarabia or something. <laughs> Baramia. Um, Baramia, yes, to come and and be her basically dog's body and to live in the house um, and and do everything for them. And she turns out to be very attractive, but also quite com- complex as a character. And um, her brother Kenneth uh, falls in, well, sort of st- starts to find her um, very charming, etc. But um, there's also various other house guests who become interested in her. And ultimately, lots of people arrive in this house um, yes. <laughs> to say, all of whom are, you know, could potentially partner up with each other. Um, and, you know, that's that's basically the plot. But with also the war going on in the background and, and various, um, you know, domestic upheavals and so on. Yes. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you kick off? Ask, or ask me a question and I'll see see what I yeah. think. Um, what did you think about um, the I- idea I think actually what's interesting I'm just thinking to myself what mm. do you think about the role of siblings in these books oh good question um, yeah I, I often we've talked about in the past how sibling families are often not thought about as adults and, and it actually can still be a really important relationship so I, I did like in both novels that siblings were amongst the priority relationships in these people's lives whether by choice or because they're just very insular uh, and yeah both novels as we've said are about siblings living together some of them starting doing it for the first time 
for after a few years and some of them who've sort of been trapped in that place for a long time. Um, and so I like that it, in both cases, the dynamics that they would have had as children where, you know, who's slightly older than each the other ones is very, very significant. The, those sort of relationships in some ways are kind of sealed in aspect, but in other ways they have to take into account the new realities of being in these different novels in, I think, 20s in one, in uh, Embry Heath and 40s, 50s. It's not quite clear how old these people are in there. Um, yes, it's always that they. Um, I think they're in their forties and fifties. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they seem very old, and then sometimes they seem quite sprightly. So it's mm-hmm. it's a bit hard um, to to see. So um, I think I found it more engaging in Embry Heath because it has that fragility throughout, and it's quite or it's got that promise of being potentially something really wonderful that then goes awry. And the same reason that I loved. Um, what was that book? Furrowed Middlebrow published uh, A House in the Country by Ruth Adam, which is a sort of fictionalised autobiography, I guess, about people joining together various families to buy this or to rent this enormous uh, mansion. And you're told from the outset that it's not going to go well. And similarly in Embry Heath, it's, no, it's not like this sort of fairy tale ending to a novel because it happens at the beginning. It's sort of what you might think is the fairy tale of, oh, we've got this inheritance and now we can all move in together and live happily ever after. And it's the unraveling of the fact that it's not going to be that. It's also very funny, like setting up house, dealing with workmen, dealing with tradesmen, um, dealing with local dogs who pop in and out. Um, they were That was all great fun. So I think it's quite a comic novel, but it is also got that undercurrent of why, of exploring why... Um, dreams can't last i guess i think it's um it's interesting how it's kind of both of these books show siblings being kind of forced to live together um in a way that's kind of i mean you just wouldn't get it nowadays would you and i wonder whether it was more of a thing at that time um i I guess especially sisters who Mm. aren't married living with a with a brother who's also unmarried I mean, the thought of living as adults, I mean, I love both of my siblings, but um, us living together, it just wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've made very clear that I'd love to live with my brother and he's always shut it down. So, yeah, I'm just waiting for yeah. the word that I'm moving. Yeah, I think we'd end up absolutely killing each other after about five minutes um, because we're all very different people. But I guess it's, it's sort of necessity that ties them together. And it's what well, is it, Enbury Heath, there is certainly a lot of affection between the siblings Mm, and mm. you know obviously they're at a much earlier stage of life so they've got different priorities and the boys certainly have got different priorities to um what's her name in the book i was gonna say stella it is basically her Uh, but um, yeah yeah, i was calling her Sophia in my head but there we are it's fine we'll go with your pronunciation (laughs) um and it's you know she very much wants to create this this cozy home for her brothers and she sort of takes on that maternal role Mm-hmm. Um, and she's quite disappointed that they're not interested in making a home with her. They don't want yes, to recreate yeah, yeah. a family home. They want to, you know, they want to be young and they want to enjoy themselves, and they want to to have a very social kind of party house essentially. And she doesn't want that. And I think it's quite. I mean, obviously, I won't say what happens at the end, but I, I thought it was quite interesting that it ended how it did, and and that. Um, that sense that it was important for them all to have a level of independence from each other. But what's interesting in um, 
as a bachelor is that you've got this actually quite destructive relationship between the siblings so I mean one of the one of the siblings obviously doesn't live there there's a cousin in this case mm-hmm. that's living with them but how they kind of you know Constance doesn't want her brother to get married but is that really just because it's more convenient for her if he doesn't and that kind of meddling in his life and having them all together it's, it's sort of they live there because it's convenient for them to live there but at the same time it's you know she's very much in charge and she's very controlling and the others have to kind of live their lives around her wishes and do as, as she pleases um it's interesting that it's called the bachelor because i thought constance was the most sort of the the strongest and most uh central character in the novel in in many ways yeah i mean i i do i think stella gibbons is obviously quite a hit and miss novelist and (laughs) um you know it's particularly her later output isn't particularly great um and i think she was obviously I think what she thought the novel was about isn't actually what it's about <laughs> I think she intended it to be this sort of light-hearted um novel about you know unlikely pairings etc I mean I have a lot of questions over her choices of pairings I'm like would we really have somebody who's like you know about 17 marrying a you know is that someone that age etc but um it's kind of thinking about yeah actually this novel really is is about a woman who seeks to control others because she has lost control over her own life essentially and I think that for me is the interesting part of the story I didn't really care about all of the the romance stuff which I thought was a bit crowbarred in really I thought it's a very interesting portrayal of what happens when a woman doesn't have what she wants and how does she use that frustration how does she kind of push that frustration out on others around her and especially as her brother's quite passive um that kind of she's seeking to control him and, and his life in quite an interesting way but then it doesn't really go anywhere yeah i've said before uh, on twitter i think that uh stella gibbons is so bad at writing romantic storylines and so insistent on doing it <laughs> she, mm. like, she often derails her own novels like Bassett, for example, the first half of Bassett about setting up a guest house, funny, brilliant. Second half about a love triangle, very tedious. And I have to say, in both novels, when the romance comes in, I found it got much less interesting, which is much much less significant in Embry Heath. It comes quite late in the day, and it's not as bad as in some of her novels, but I think it would still have been a stronger novel if it hadn't been included. Whereas in The Bachelor, I mean, there's about 19 proposals by the end. People are constantly proposing to each other. And, I mean, really? I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't care about any of the, most of the characters. And I think there's too many characters in the book and it's too long. She keeps so. throwing new new people in if yeah. she gets bored. Yeah. New people come to visit. Okay. Why does the father appear halfway through? I'm like, what uh, is this? Yeah. Um, and also I was like, this this bloke must have had these kids when he was about 12, considering yes. <laughs> um, how old everyone is. But it's interesting how, for me, I think her strongest novels, the ones that I've enjoyed the most, have been were Westwood and um, I did enjoy Enderby Heath because mm-hmm. they are autobiographical and they are focused on the story of a woman finding her way in the world and they're not centred around romance. As soon as she... And that's why Enderby Heath, I thought, was really interesting. Um, because it, it explores that kind of time when you're branching out and you're living on your own for the first time and trying to kind of, I suppose, find your way while 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of emulating what what you've come from, or trying to create what you didn't have as a child, and then working out how that works for you in in reality, and then working out the best way to live your life rather than just trying to copy a a method that you've seen elsewhere. Um, and Westwood is is very similar to that. It's even set in the same place, and mm-hmm. um, again about somebody who's who's starting out in life. I think she's very good at doing that when she starts to try and do other things it's just like what you know it's it's just messy like there's no you know looking at this as someone who's used to analyzing literature and also like looking at stories and helping people work out what their stories are about I'm just like uh, you had like three ideas three plot ideas in here and we needed to just like go with one of them rather than trying to chuck them all (laughs) into the same book and, and then finishing up with something that's just a bit bizarre really um I'm not really sure what I read (laughs) Yeah, I um, found the whole thing quite tedious, to be honest. I, it's, it is very long, uh, The Bachelor. And if, in case anyone's wondering, should I make up a European country and then make up their culture and customs and have a character called Vatui who comes over and is very histrionic? <laughs> uh, the answer is probably no. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was very unsuccessful. I mean, Vatui, I thought, was an interesting character, but every time she tried to develop more of the nation's lore, uh, it all... Um, just felt quite uncomfortable (laughs) yeah and I thought that you know there are obviously you know novels of that period there are always going to be things that you cringe at or that you know would not be appropriate now and I I did think that there was a you know I don't like the kind of the comedy foreigner Hmm. sort of character and and having to the way that she was portrayed and it was kind of like a lot of the time her behavior was sort of made out to be oh that's because she's from this place yeah yeah. um and it's like you know we wouldn't say that uh, oh that person's really horrible it's because they're english you know like you you can't just take somebody's country with someone's personality traits so it was all a bit broad strokes and i also thought you know you're writing this during world war ii would it not have been more interesting to to have somebody from an actual real country and be able to explore what how the you know the impact of, of having to leave your country and how to integrate into another country you know because people are actually doing that in your country right now um i didn't really understand why she'd felt the need to make it up yeah i mean it, she, the character reminded me a lot of mimi who, uh, who's a austrian refugee in mary essex's tea is so intoxicating i'm not sure if you've read that i haven't one, i have which, i've got yeah. it but i've not read it yet uh, you gave so it yeah, to me Oh, did I? That's nice to me. Oh, I did, didn't I? Um, when you were looking around my shelves, yeah. yeah. And and again, she's a she's a comic character, and it's not the most sensitive portrayal. But there are deeper things going on there, and there's, I guess there's deeper things for Vatui. But yeah, she, why wasn't Vatui could easily have been an Austrian refugee or a German refugee, or yeah, maybe not. Yeah, any number of countries, um, because yeah, it was just muddying the waters, really. Uh, I, d- I mean, I think in both novels, pacing is a bit of an issue. Like, I really liked mm-hmm. Embry Heath, but it is weird that we don't get to Embry Heath for so long. And then there's a whole yeah. bunch of new characters thrown in in the final third, which is, you know, goes against all the rules of storytelling to suddenly have all these important characters thrust in late in the day. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, as, as you were saying, in The Bachelor, there's constant whirl of new characters. Uh, in a sort of, it feels a bit like an effort to keep her dying novel alive but it just makes it <laughs> slightly more irritating 
Um, yeah, it's like yeah. you know, if, you, if you've run out of things to do, it's it's probably because you haven't really got a plot, and you might want to address that <laughs> rather than just getting some more, adding some new characters. Yeah, and I just yeah. didn't actually find the setup. I mean, I I love the setups to do, to do with houses and families living together and all that sort of thing, but I found Kenneth quite boring as a character. Like Constance mm. has a bit, a bit of something to her, but Kenneth's sort of just a bit of like sly old dog, but not actually. <laughs> <laughs> not really a rogue more just like sort of quite sort of domesticated but with a bit of a past and well he's, he just ended up being a bit sort of nothing to me just sort of yeah i mean most of the characters were sort of very thinly drawn weren't they and mm. then you had the ones that were most interesting like you know constance was interesting and her sister and her cousin um uh frankie was really interesting um but the rest of them i was just like I don't need any of these people really. I mean, it it could have just been a really great novel about kind of manipulative women, but it wasn't. So, (laughs) yeah. But Embry Heath was lovely. And I feel like, you know, that's, um, I thought that was really interesting as well. Really interesting depictions of um, working as well with the brother, Mm, Uh, the the younger brother whose name I can't remember. I want to say Francis. Is that right? I think it is, yes. Yeah, who goes to work for the first time and that description of like your first job where you don't know what you're doing and um, he's really excited because he wants to meet. Uh, there's a lovely scene where he's really excited. He's just got his first day and he wants to meet like girls. Um, mm. And he goes into the <laughs> office and one of the, the girls who works there sizes him up straight so, straight away and thinks that she's going to, you know, look down her nose at him, etc. And then he works out exactly how to get on her, on her right side. And I thought, oh, that's yeah, really yeah. funny and well observed. Um, and his excitement at getting to like go on an errand so he gets to leave the office and go out for the day. And I remember I used to love that when I was uh, <laughs> working in my first job. Um, and it's, you know, there's lots of charming sort of insight like that. Um, I mean, both of these books, nothing really happens. And I think if you know that going in, you can kind of, Stella Gibbons is a good writer and she's got a good eye for detail and she really enjoys landscapes and uh, domestic interiors. So, I mean, certainly as well, some of the most mm-hmm. interesting things in The Bachelor is the description of the house, um, which I enjoyed. But um, yeah. I think, yeah, she's, if people, I think a lot of people obviously come to her via Cold Comfort Farm, which is her most idiosyncratic novel or what you know you're not mm-hmm. going to find that anywhere else it's a bit like em delafield you're not going to find diary of provincial lady in her novels yeah yeah um so yeah and i do I think <laughs> we're talking about the houses or the house in Embry heath as i hinted at the beginning it, it initially seems sort of like a two up two down quite quite cramped mm. but then they have then they have a dinner party for a dozen people <laughs> they've apparently got room to do that so yeah the thing is you know it's very, <laughs> very tiny don't they it's absolutely yeah. tiny and it does sound tiny but i'm like but then you're all living there and it's fine so i'm not really sure my yeah. my version of tiny is yours because like um, I, mean, I could fit maybe four, three guests plus me to dinner and it would be quite cramped in my flat so yeah, yeah. It, certainly wouldn't be able to get a dozen people in but it's um it's, it's set in the Vale of Health in um, in Hampstead, and what's interesting is she says at the time that the rent is expensive, and I wondered, you know, but they all managed to afford it on their mm. meagre salaries. But nowadays, I mean, if you were going to buy a house there, you'd be looking at for that tiny cottage, you'd probably be spending three million or something. <laughs> Um, and I did like all the aunts and uncles and their sort of scathing relationships with them, but the way they were quite polite to them in person, that all felt quite realistic and possible. Yes. 
autobiographical. I hope her aunts and uncles didn't read it. But uh, yeah, I know. I'd be very upset if, like, obviously my nephews would not write about me like that because I'm a wonderful <laughs> auntie. But um, yes, and their favourite, as I tell them every time. Well, only because I'm <laughs> their, their only auntie, so you know. Um, but it's um, you know, it's they are good relationships, and all of those characters they're funny and they're humorous, but they also do have a bit of a purpose. Whereas I feel like in The Bachelor, a lot of the characters are just like, hmm, I need to create something in this chapter i know i will enter another character um rather than there actually being something for them to do yes and i certainly didn't feel like when the father turns up that we saw nuanced daughter father son father niece uncle relationships with who was just sort of another guy in the house that they had occasionally had yeah and um, you know that was a potential to do something really interesting because we find out that he left their mother to go off and be a nightclub owner which i just thought was brilliant yeah. um, and i was like you know again like this guy could have a book of his own he sounds amazing but also there's no good exploration of you know what does that do to a family mm-hmm. when the father decides to leave and obviously they, they, they were adults when he did this um yeah but it's still kind of like you know it's like don't again like Stella don't introduce something that's potentially like like a bomb going off and then do nothing with it (laughs) yeah well I think it's probably relatively clear which way we're leaning but just to confirm I certainly preferred Embry Heath and I will be getting rid of The Bachelor (laughs) well thankfully I got Bachelor on my Kindle so I can just Um, but yeah, Envy Heath I enjoyed very much and I would recommend it. It's um but I think if you're going to branch out beyond Cold Comfort Farm, I would say Westwood was my would be my recommendation above these two. Yeah, I think Embry Heath is up there with Westwood for me. There's only the two well Miss Miss Lindsay and Parr is the one that I really loved for that's out of print. So the ones that are in print, those are the, yeah, the two to to rush towards and i yeah just if you are looking for more do some googling you'll, you'll quite quickly find which ones are loved and which ones are not and there's a there is some dross certainly there is but i mean they are mostly all available um as paperbacks now so you don't have to spend yeah. a fortune yeah yeah there we go um in the next episode we will be looking at uh late and soon em delafield's final novel and a game of hide and seek by elizabeth taylor we hope you can join us then. Yeah, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.